Amen. Thank you, Pastor Brenda, for those prayers. And thank you, May, for your ongoing ministry to ICM and your challenge to us to think about what God has given us. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you today, whether you're here in person or online. We are in our third week of our Kingdom Now series. This series started two weeks ago with the Beatitudes, this group of people around Jesus that the world would not call blessed. Jesus calls them blessed. Today, we're talking about this inside-out righteousness, this transformation from inside of us. Last week, Jesus taught the crowd that was around him about being salt and light, being that seasoning to the community, being a reminder of who God is in the midst of the community. And he calls them to be a light, a light to the people around them, a light to the nations, a light to the world, to draw them to who Jesus is and that good news. One of the things we highlighted last week was one of the things the church can do, the best gift the church can give the world is reflecting the values of the kingdom, living out this very important teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. If the church would live this out, we would have such a witness in this world about who God is and the transformation that he brings. Now, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're not hitting every verse. One of the passages we're skipping over, actually, Pastor Brenda preached on back in the Faith Redefined series, and she did a great job on that. So if you want more on that, um, look that up on our YouTube page. But I asked her to unpack a little bit in one paragraph about the meaning of this passage in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the Torah, the teaching of the Old Testament was a temporary sort of training wheels for the people of God. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that the law had become a guardian for Christ. Why? Because the Torah cannot get us to new creation, to being a restored image bearer, of who we are created to be. The best human effort does not transform us internally. Torah could keep you from murder, but it could not make you love the person that you are wanting to murder. So Torah points us to the ultimate renewal found in Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, we can experience new life from the inside out. So Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to be the embodiment of it, to show us how it works in real life. So in between the salt and light, he gives this teaching about who he is and what he's meant to do. And then we jump in to our passage today. So in that passage, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, he's saying your righteousness could never be enough. The Pharisees were the most righteous people. It would be like saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of Mother Teresa, it will not be enough. See, Jesus wasn't just interested in conformity to the law. He wanted inner transformation. He wanted internal transformation that that works its way out into the world as we love others, as we do good. So Jesus embodies the Torah and shows us how to live it out. That brings us to our passage today, Matthew 5, 21 to 26. It's on the screen and it's in your bulletin. Let's dig in. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. All right, before we unpack this passage, let's go to God in prayer. God, we just invite you into this time afresh. God, may your word um, speak to us today through the power of your Holy Spirit. May you bring to each one of us what we need to hear, I pray, in your name. Amen. So let's go back to verse 21. It says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. But I tell you, and this is a series of statements that Jesus is preaching. He goes through a whole litany of them, and we're going to continue on this passage next week. And this but here, though, makes it sound like that they're doing something wrong, that there's something contrary he's about to teach them. But actually, both of these prohibitions are talked about in the Old Testament. Murder is, of course, in the Ten Commandments. Um, anger is talked about in Leviticus chapter 19. So really, a better word there is and. You have heard that it was said, and I am telling you this. Do not be angry towards your brother or sister. So there are over 600 laws in the Old Testament, and religious leaders would rank them from a heavy command like murder to a lighter command like angry. So Jesus begins this whole series of looking at a heavy command, one that was more prioritized, to a lighter command. And he's saying both of these are important. It's not just this external conformity that is important. I'm interested in what's internal in you. So murder is a heavier law, Angry, anger is lighter, but Jesus says these are connected. It's not just those outward things that we can notice whether you've done, it's actually the heart issue of anger that I'm interested in as well. Just because you haven't broken the heavier law does not mean that you're righteous. Jesus is raising the bar for the people here. So what is anger? What is he getting at? There's two words um, in Greek for anger, and this one is orge. And it's this ongoing anger towards someone. So Jesus is saying, if you're in a state of anger, you have not fulfilled the law. You are not righteous. And then Jesus says, if you say to anybody, raka, and it's really kind of I'm not going to say it because I'll spray it. That's the idea. You're supposed to really like this guttural sort of spray. It's this term of insult, of calling somebody a fool. He says this is important part of this anger continuum, that anger can lead to contempt. So have you met any calm, angry people, people that weren't flying off the handle? I have. And sometimes where the anger is just below the surface. And I can be that person. A few years ago, I was digging into the Enneagram. It's kind of a personality profile. And 
um, my section of the Enneagram, they were talking about anger being below the surface. I was like, that is me, right? I think on some level I thought if I'm not yelling at somebody, then, I, then I'm not you know, an angry person, but it was right below the surface, and occasionally it would come out, and it was convicting for me to think about this low level of anger that I can walk around with. So raka is this contempt you have for a person. So you've moved from anger, this sort of, this disposition, this ongoing anger towards a person to actually this contempt that you have. And the problem is when we put somebody in a category of contempt, we're no longer valuing them as a person. We've put them in a category that excuses our anger towards them. We've put them in a category that, that sort of gets us off the hook with treating them like somebody born in the image of God. And this can be a struggle with people who have different political views, right? Different um, takes on vaccines. I know for me right now, when I see hospitals around the world that are overrun with patients who have refused to get a vaccine, it stirs something in me when I hear the stories of care not being able to be delivered for something that could have been prevented. And I can notice my heart going into this contempt category. And I've seen horrible examples of that contempt when people are suffering in the hospital from those who disagree with their views. I move them into a category of justifying my anger and I lose compassion for them. I especially lose compassion for those who are perpetrating false information about vaccines. And those people should be held accountable. It's not that they shouldn't, but I know in my own heart these are issues that I can wrestle with. It can be easy to devalue those from different ethnic backgrounds, social classes, political parties, different faiths, different sexuality, different religious traditions. And Jesus is saying this is not life in the kingdom. This is not how believers are to be. We see some leaders actually build their audience on a platform of contempt. Let's hate the other. Let's gather support for our cause and let's hate the other. And that's not what Jesus calls us to in the church. It's not life in the kingdom. This quote I love from Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy says, in your anger, I want to hurt you. In contempt, I don't care whether you are hurt or not, or at least I say so. You are not worthy of my consideration one way or the other. We can be angry at someone without denying their worth, but contempt makes it easy for us to hurt them or see them further degraded. So when we move into the contempt category, this raka, this devaluing them, it's usually because we're attacking them and not the issue at hand. This can happen in a marriage relationship where there's conflict and you blame the other person for that conflict and you begin to attack them versus attacking the problem. Oftentimes when I'm sitting with couples, I'll have them imagine the problem being right between them and focus on the problem and attack the problem and not attack the person. And this works with political views as well. Uh, Attack the issue. Go after truth, right? Go after fake news, but don't attack the other. Don't devalue them as created in the image of God. I was at Hope for All this week. They're doing a discipleship training school, and 
um, I was teaching a session to them, and I was asking them, where does the good news start? Where does the gospel start for us? And some people, oh, the Great Commission, you know, go and make disciples, or started with Jesus. It's one of the songs we sang. He set the captives free, right? But actually, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1, that you are created in the image of God, that you are created good. This is the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel. And Jesus, in this teaching on angry, said, we need to treat others with dignity and respect. The passage carries on. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there. So the altar was in Jerusalem. He's talking to people in Galilee. This is about 70 miles away, right? They didn't have cars or trains or buses to go in. They had to walk those 70 miles. He's saying, you are there at the altar. You are ready to offer your animal as a sacrifice. And then you remember somebody has something against you. It's not even your anger. It's they have anger against you. And you're like, to the priest, hold that. I need to go back 70 miles, which would take quite a bit of time, and try to reconcile this relationship. Then I'll come back and do that, right? Jesus is saying this is serious. What if we were a church that practiced this? Could you imagine the light on the hill that we would be to the city of Hong Kong? The passage goes on and settle matters quickly. He's re-emphasizing this, do this, right? Do this soon. Don't wait on it. Jesus fulfills the Torah. He's interpreting it correctly. He's saying this anger thing wasn't just something, you know, in the Old Testament that was, you know, meant to be this external law. We need to see it transform in our hearts. Now, remember last week, I said, Jesus contradicts himself. It seems to be in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, let the world see your good deeds, let light on the hill. But then in the next chapter, and we'll get to that, he says, actually, do your prayer and your giving and your fasting in secret. Don't let anybody see them, right? So we have to look at intention. We have to look under the surface when we come alongside of that. So Jesus is saying, don't call somebody a fool, but guess what he does? He, he calls somebody a fool. You can look at Matthew 23 and Matthew 7, right? He does the very thing he prohibits. Jesus also gets angry in Scripture. He gets angry in several places. In, in John 11, we see that he's angry at the death of Lazarus. He is angry at death. He's emotional. He misses his friend Lazarus. He is He's angry at the Pharisees with the man with the shriveled hand when he wants to heal him, and the Pharisees are looking to catch him. He's angry when the disciples keep the children away and don't give the children access to him. He's angry when the religious leaders turn the temple into a marketplace, making it harder for those who are in poverty to get access to God. So clearly, you can embody the Torah and still be angry. There is a righteous anger. The problem for me, though, is all of my anger feels righteous, self-righteous. Every time I get angry, I feel justified, right? Somebody messed up. Somebody offended me, right? Somebody did something wrong. Somebody didn't follow the rules. I always feel righteous in my anger in the moment. And if I'm honest, it feels good sometimes to be angry 
That is not what Jesus is talking about. Those are not the things that Jesus was getting angry about. I've shared about the anger that I would get on my bike. I'm not going to go into that story. Riding my bike in Hong Kong is a spiritual formation activity. And God has grown me in my anger uh, a lot riding my bike. And that's exciting to see that. But this is never very far away if, if you're like me. This is an ongoing thing that God wants to transform. So, so how does, what's the test, right? Jesus says, you know, be careful about this anger. It's destructive. And then he is angry and he has a righteous anger. What are the things that Jesus is doing that he's angry about? He's angry about religious hypocrisy. He's angry at religious leaders when they put up barriers between the people and God. These are things that Jesus cares about. Is my anger directed to the things Jesus is angry about? Or is it more about me, my pride, my convenience, my comforts, my control, my plan? What did Jesus do with his anger? It led him to action. He just didn't keep it internally. He actually acted upon it. He welcomed the children. He challenged the religious leaders. He cleared the marketplace. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He healed the man with the shriveled hand. He went to the cross to the, remove the ultimate barrier between God and humanity. His anger led to redemption. His anger led to sacrifice. When I'm in touch with my anger, it usually leads to pride and self-righteousness and justification. Anger around the globe right now is almost a prerequisite for your cause. If you're not angry enough about injustice, then you're not caring enough about it. If you're not angry enough and you're not showing that anger enough, then maybe you don't care enough. It's as if anger has become one of the fruits of the Spirit. There is a place for anger. We see that in Jesus' life. We see scripture said, in your anger, do not sin, because we know that it can so quickly lead to sin. I love this quote I came across. In the right hands, with the right training, and from the right heart, anger can be used righteously. In the right hands, with the right training, from the right heart, anger can be used righteously. This is a great book, um, Angry Like Jesus using his example to spark your moral courage. And if you want to take a look at it after the service or look it up, you can do that, and it helps you. Because I think our anger helps us to get in touch with injustice, but that's not the end point. It's a starting point to get involved, to work towards change, to work towards redemption. So in our anger... Can we still pray for those we're angry about? Can we pray God's blessing for them? Can we want God's best for the person we're angry about, the political party we're angry with, the spouse, the child we're angry with? Can we still treat other people with dignity as being made in the image of God? That's the Jesus way to be angry. Jesus, his anger leads to right actions by removing barriers, leads to redemption, to sacrifice. Anger is a, an ongoing journey for many, and there's a great book um, that I've used over the years. It's called The Anger Workbook, and um, 
take a look at that if you want to explore that in some, some more details. This passage goes on, and we're not going to have time to, to dive too much into them, but the law provides these guardrails for our lives, right? There are guardrails for the community to flourish, but guardrails are never enough, right? Guardrails can keep you driving off the cliff, but guardrails can't make you a good driver, right? Guardrails can't lead you to a heart that is transformed. So Jesus carries on. He talks about adultery. He says, you need to start with the heart. You need to guard your heart from lust. Take ownership of your thought life. He talks about divorce, and this isn't the only teaching he gives on divorce, but he's speaking into a patriarchal system where it was easy for the men to take advantage of women and to put them out in a destitute position. He says, you should be caring for your wife. He talks about oaths. We don't preach much on the oaths passage, right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Dallas Willard has a wonderful insight. And what does this mean? He says, sometimes we can use God language to um, manipulate people. God told me to do this. God led me to this. A godly vision. We're in a visioning process right now, right? We can add God to our language to give it a certain weightiness when really maybe under the surface we're looking to manipulate others. Next week, we're looking at the final two. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. I think this might be one of the most misunderstood of Jesus' statements in the Sermon on the Mount. And then it was, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's probably the easiest of Jesus' teachings to understand, but the most difficult to actually do. See, mere laws are not enough to bring internal transformation. Jesus isn't giving his teaching, expecting his disciples to be perfect. In fact, we know they're not. We know they stumble. We know through scripture that people fall in this process. He gives us this teaching because he knows we're not perfect, that we're all in need of transformation. The problem in a Christian community is often that we, we look at these external signs and we cover up the internal strife in our heart that we're working through and we don't want anybody to see it because we want to appear maybe closer to Christ. We're afraid to be vulnerable. What will people think of me? And Jesus is saying we need to start with being real with where you're at. Confessing your anger letting those around you know about it that can be praying for you and journeying with you because we can never be righteous enough on our own. It is only through Christ that we obtain his righteousness and what he has done for us. So Jesus invites us on a journey of transformation. That is life in the kingdom. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you, in fact, are here, that you take us on this journey of transformation, God. And I, I just... Lift up this teaching today, God, from your word that we might let it go deep into our hearts, God. God, may we be real with ourselves when we're walking in contempt and anger, God. May we see that as something to confess. May we seek forgiveness with those who we have wronged, God. May we work towards reconciliation as much as it depends on us. God, we confess that, and I confess that I have let anger ferment in my heart and my mind, God. That I've justified my anger when it was not justifiable, God. God, you are a God of redemption and you meet us in the place that we're at. 
We thank you for who you are, Jesus, in your name. Amen.